Folgerpod. Folgerpod. A podcast from the Friends of Georgia Radio. Today's guest ended up as president of one of radio's most successful consulting firms based right here in Georgia. That's not what he imagined his career would be like. In fact, when he was in high school, he planned to be a rock musician. And on his first media job after college, he was wrangling video assets for Fred Rogers. Yep, that Fred Rogers. Which probably didn't prepare him real well for having to coach some of the biggest names in radio, from Howard Stern to Mark and Brian. So he retires, and he writes a book about radio. Now, it's historical fiction, but I guarantee you, you'll recognize friends and co-workers in the book. Dwight Douglas is next. Hi, this is Allie Young from Friends of Georgia Radio. These podcasts are just one way we honor our rich history of great radio stations and the talented people who created them. Our website is loaded with lots more good stuff, classic air checks, photos, and videos from all over Georgia. Check it out, then get involved. All the details are at friendsofgeorgiaradio.org. Hello, Dwight Douglas. I am delighted to get a chance to talk to you. I've been an admirer, and uh, we've been friends for a long time, and I don't know whether we've ever sat down and, and talked about your career, which is pretty dang stellar. Well, thank you. That's very nice. That's a good open. I always like stellar being used instead of Stella, because Stella reminds me of beer and also of Marlon Brando. Stella, Stella. There you go. So I want to talk to you about your upbringing, because you were brought up in Pittsburgh, which is a home to some pretty good radio stations. I know you ended up working with the ABC stations there later, but did you do radio while you were in high school or college? Uh, no, high school, I was a, a musician. I was a, we were, had a rock band, uh, Bugsy and the Stencils. Terrible name, but <laughs> the cool thing was that we used stencils to say stencils on the drum head. So. That was kind of a cool uh, visual pun or whatever. That's cute. We were horrible. We were horrible. So I went into that thinking I would, you know, get be able to pick up uh, young women. Well, unfortunately, the lead singer and the drummer got all the women. And Richie, the guitar player, and I played bass. We carried all the equipment for some reason. I, I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> So you you graduate from college and was one of your first jobs at the WQED? Actually, I didn't graduate from college. One of my, you know, when, when people ask you any regrets, yeah, that's one, uh, along with the breast reduction surgery that took place <laughs> in certain places. But anyway, <laughs> point is, is that when I was in college, I landed in the perfect place because WPPJ was the uh, student station at Point Park University. And it's PPJ because it was first a junior college and then I got there the year after it became a college and now it's a university. So I had a wonderful situation there. I had some amazing radio friends and most of the people that worked at Point Park's radio station also worked part-time professionally uh, around the market. So um kenny lee karpinski also known as kenny lee he was the my mentor in college and then i became his uh slave driver in real life we we have been on and off different places we've worked at uh, three or four different places the same thing and my last uh 16 years of work was at rcs 
where he also worked. So, and now he edits all my books. So, uh, you know, he's, he's cursed, really. He's really cursed. And, and we'll talk about the book uh, soon because I'm, I'm really anxious to get into that. But uh, starting your, your first, looks like your first job was actually working on the tech crew for Mr. Rogers. I mean, what an experience. Yeah, well, I couldn't get a job in radio. I don't have a great voice, although I do voices. I I couldn't break in as a DJ. I was a horrible DJ. So um, there were many jobs open at WQED, which is the uh, public station, public TV station, which is where Mr. Rogers was produced. So that was a, an amazing education on how to put together a show, uh, how to write shows, how to uh, stage them, light them all that i worked interestingly in uh, slides and film in the telecini room which back in the old days there were no electronic files everything was either a, a piece of film or a slide or whatever that came up on the screen so that was an education i learned how to splice film edit film which was a carryover from radio because you we sl we spliced tape magnetic tape well this is you know celluloid that you're using glue basically you sniff a little bit and you, have, you <laughs> do a little splice and that's how you make a movie that was great and i worked with michael douglas there not the the michael douglas that you think of but his name name in show business is michael keaton he was also on the on the, on the group no and he had been at, at kent state and after the shootings a lot of people came back home to pittsburgh and he got a job there and then left pittsburgh to go to hollywood You'll have to talk to him about his career. I don't even know how it ended up. I can tell you a little about that. So then you get you get into the ABC network stations, helping them to develop their FM properties. And that was kind of early on with the FM transition, because I remember their, guy, their stations were mostly soft rock, and they were evolving to a, a hipper format. Right. Well, when the FCC said that, you know, fewer and fewer percentages of the day could be simulcast, ABC was very quick to protect their licenses and go out and get some formats. And um, Alan Shaw had come into ABC. And interestingly enough, I just talked to Alan recently because of the book research. And he was telling me that the, the way he got into this whole rock thing, he was a top 40 guy from, from New Orleans who worked in Albany for a while, but he was in Chicago at WCFL. And the program director, I think it was Ken Draper, said, I don't want to go to that stupid Gavin convention in, in San Francisco. So he sends Alan to San Francisco to the Gavin convention, and he hears Tom Donahue speak about this format, about how it could be this and be that. When he got back to Chicago, he was all vibrating with this idea that, hey, we could do this. I need an FM group. And so he went to New York and pitched ABC. So I came in, Lee Abrams was in Detroit, and there were a lot of great people. Tom Yates was in L.A. It was a great group of people. And we were, we were actually kind of the bad guys because we were taking all the old hippies and saying, okay, we're going to put a format in here. We're going to rotate the hits. We're going to make good radio uh, and try to get some ratings. And we did that, and we took a lot of crap from a lot of people uh mostly the liberal music press and uh you know hardcore freeform radio guys that's what i say 
That was that was quite an era, and um, those guys certainly opened a lot of doors for a lot of us. But they were also kind of all over the road. And as you said, you guys got in and and added some discipline. What was the biggest problem child radio station for ABC back then? Which was the one you had to focus on the most to start with? Well, I was at WDVE. So, I mean, we had it all together. We had a big signal. There was no one else really doing rock per se in the market. Um, Out of all the stations, I think probably the one that was that was most frustrating for ABC management was San Francisco uh, because they had less of a great signal and San Francisco had KSAN and all those hardcore stations had programmed the market to like freeform. So there you were trying to convince the management in New York that you need to be more liberal. And they were saying, no, you need to be less freeform. You need to be more uh, bolted down. So yeah, that was a problem for for everybody. But, but every every station did well. Uh, Detroit did well. Houston did well. Um, Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh. Um, Sony Seven, uh, WPLJ became mm-hmm. you know, a very famous rock station, and then became a top forty station. So, and, and that was the other thing is after we left, I left to go start up another hometown AOR station. So that wasn't as successful for me, and I ended up leaving wydd after about a year and a half it was just we just didn't have the the power the money or the or the marketing dollars to to put it over the top so we all left there uh they continued with rock at ydd i went to 13q um and i was there as a creative production director which was a lot of fun and bill tanner was very the late great was very um was a great mentor, not only in radio things, top 40 things, but also management things. I mean, he really wrote everybody pretty hard. And I, I appreciated it because I was trying to get back to being a PD somewhere. And infor- unfortunately for me, I said to him, yeah, Abrams wants me to go to DC 101 in Washington. And he said, well, that'd be the greatest thing for you. Let me talk to him. And next thing I know, he's hired my replacement. Oh, geez. And I didn't have the job yet. I went for two months. I didn't have a job. And then finally they called me and I went to DC and convinced them to, to hire me. So, uh, and that was a great, that was a great opportunity because everybody thought, you know, there's no way a rock station is going to be that big. There's already HFS. There's already uh, WMAL FM. And we went into the market and it was instantaneous. It was just an explosion. So uh, that was fun. And I got a lot of job offers. And that was, it was a little bit like, uh, you know, a married man at a striptease convention because <laughs> I had so many job offers. And of course, I I then started to like talk to the people and that got back to the management. And, and finally they said, okay, we don't have a PD looking for another job. We want a PD. So I left there. And uh, so that was, that was a transition. I mean, I stayed in Washington for a while, and then I went back to my parents' house in Pennsylvania up in the mountains. And um, uh, finally, I got a call from uh, Kent Burkhart and Lee Abrams, and they said, okay, come to Atlanta, and we'll work with you 
but I, I it's funny i wanted to do rock stations but they're like no 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 you're gonna do country stations you're gonna do chr stations you're gonna do rock stations you're gonna do hispanic stations you're, whatever you're gonna do everything r&b whatever so when i was like yeah okay and i guess the idea was i was going to be the guy to do the smaller market stations or whatever and then bang what explodes is disco and so when wktu in new york became number one everybody and their sister wanted to have disco on their radio stations and so i spent the next year running around places from peoria to honolulu to boston to wherever putting on these disco stations in markets where i knew that the life the life line for that the the, the short life on that disco thing was going to hit hit them but eventually some of those stations transitioned out and you know i cover a lot of this in in the radio book that i wrote uh although it's historical fiction there's a lot of parallel to what actually happened in the real world well and and i i guess we can jump into the book i want to get back to burkhart douglas in a minute but um it's it's such a fun read white true radio confessions sex drugs and rock and roll and you were telling me earlier that uh people call you up with stories from the book thinking that it was something that actually took place in your life and it was it's a work of fiction and you have friends who think hey i didn't know you'd worked in this market right, right. <laughs> so so when i started out i thought to myself i could do this straight up memoir and i thought oh man I, there's so many people some of the people are no longer with us so it it was a little challenging because i thought well i don't want to say anything negative about Somebody Charlie Minor, yeah. yeah, yeah, dead or whatever, yeah. And then at the same time, I thought, well, I want to be able to tell all the stories, not just what things that happened to me. I mean, I was around radio for eight zillion years, so I heard a lot of great stories. And I said, okay, how can I figure out how to get these stories into this? So there were two levels that I finally came to. Is one is Forrest Gump. I always loved that movie and. The thing about Forrest Gump is that you know that Forrest is not a real person, right? But all of a sudden, he starts showing up in all these real situations. He's at the White House. He's playing at, for Alabama football. You know, it's just a, this great montage of historical timeline that that really does give you an idea of what he was going through as the character, right? Right. And the other thing is when I was moving to Florida after I retired, I, I did like the old seven trips back and forth between upstate New York and New York and, and Florida. And so I ended up getting a um, a 17 disc Tom Clancy uh, novel set. It's the, it's the big, it's the four novels that were made into the the prequel to this to all the stories that are going on now with uh, what's his name when his main character that at that point the son he was the son of the president so anyway so i'm making these trips back and forth and it took me literally two years to get through the 17 discs to listen to all the the whole book and the thing about tom clancy which really is like a hero the late great one of the things he does is he 
is able to put in enough detail on whatever he's talking about. If he's talking about spies using a computer and the FBI or CIA going into a computer, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is exactly right. There's nothing made up. It's, it's all real facts. And people say, if you go to any of his books about submarines or, or aircraft carriers or planes or whatever, is that it's all real. It's all the stuff is in there. And you're reading it, you're saying, how, how, did he, how did he know that? So I wanted to achieve that. At the same time, the book was written in code. And what I mean by that is, if you were with me at so-and-so, and you saw the reference to whatever, a disco demolition or whatever, you could say, oh, is that that guy? You, could, you can put the pieces of the puzzle together and you, you can read. And I've had certain people call me and it's funny when people call me and they'll, they're like, okay, I don't remember you going out with a, a woman who joined Scientology. And I was like, okay, I didn't actually go out with her, but she was the bartender at Jason's in DC. <laughs> it's, yeah. like, it's like, oh, okay. But that's where I got the fodder for all that, that character and how to really flesh that out. Uh, and there's some incredibly uh, funny stories in the book, and um, you can imagine that 99% of them actually took place in some radio station somewhere in the country, even though they're fiction. Yeah, well, I can tell you, um, I did uh, approach Charlie Miner's daughter, um, and to make sure I gave her all the text that I was going to write about Charlie, and I said, look. I'm not here to create any problems. And she's very gracious. She went through everything. And uh, she came back and she said, okay, this and this, please take it out. It's, that's like, you know, too much. I said, okay, okay, no problem. But again, the goal was to maintain the character. And the character of Charlie Minor, yes, he, he was a real person. But he also represented that person and we all know that person we all know that record promoter who would do anything to get a record played at the same time when there are certain deaths that take place in the book um i was very careful to make sure i covered that because there was some stuff in there that who knows that it could open reopen a cold case or something if they <laughs> if they could if they knew what market it was or whatever but it was fun writing it. I mean, I people say, "Hey, you're going to write another one on radio?" And I and I always say, "Look, I'm already, I'm I have a schedule. I'm the new book comes out. Um, it's called Tattoo Detective, and it'll be out November between number, November fifteenth and December or something. But um, I mean, it's all we're we're in the final bend. We got the cover going, um, and this book is." a science fiction book it takes place in the future 2048 and the and tattoo detectives are people who have this unique pattern recognition uh talent and they're tapped by the government to id people because dna has been hacked and mm. people in the future are using crispr undo redo the dna or or change the dna of criminals and so the government says well let's use tattoos and so they get diabolical in the fact that they 
mandate that everybody has to have a tattoo. So it's dystopic, futuristic thing. And I think it's a little bit of a canary in a coal mine or a warning shot across the bow or whatever. Say, like, hey, if things keep getting worse, this is what the future could be like. That's kind of like what it is. So I, I think it's a frightening book. And I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> and and no radio guys in this one, right? No, there's no radio at all. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, Not that I'm saying there's no radio in the future. I know. I'm just saying, no, no. As a matter of fact, he does say something about satellite music or something. He there's, there's a reference to satellite music in it. And Howard Stern's mentioned in the book, too. This well, old, that old-timey new uh, interview guy, Howard Stern. The, you know, oh, Yeah. What a reference in the in the future. Well, so back to Burkhart Douglas because I'm I'm just so curious about I I had never heard that story about you getting to the company and I always thought you were kind of the one of the the rock guys and you started off doing disco and so many different things. When when did you and was Superstars as a format fully formed at that time while you guys were doing other stuff? Oh yeah! By the time I get there, he's got, he's got conventions every year. Lee has everything together. He's got seventy stations. I mean, that was one of the things is that the way the company was structured. Lee had to pay half my salary. Kent paid the other half because it was Burkhardt Abrams, right? So, and I basically was a was a freelancer, so to speak, um, until I became president, and then Kent said to me you know, you're going to have to actually be an employee because there's a law that says you have to actually work for the company when you're a president. Wow. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> but that that did change me uh, financially a little bit. But but it was a great learning experience and it was great. I mean, it was Burkhardt Abrams and it was Burkhardt Abrams, Michaels, Douglas, and then Lee Michaels was killed in the car accident. Then it was Burkhardt Abrams, Douglas, Elliott. And then... A lot of people went away and it ended up being Burkhart Douglas. But um, but the thing about consulting is because we were so successful and being one of the first, I mean, Kent, there's no question, Kent was one of the first uh, uh, consultants ever in radio. He and George Burns, I think. I don't know if you remember that name. Sure. Anyway, um, and Drake Chanel, obviously. Um, because we were so successful, successful, there was so much competition and there were so many consulting firms. And so it was, it got a little crazy, but as time goes on, I have to say that those were, that was two decades of insanity and fun. And it's funny because I, I just helped uh, Ron Brandon uh, redo his, his book and get it up on Kindle for him. And it was fun because I said, look, before you publish this, I know, I know you're a tip sheet guy and a, you know, you know, publisher. I said, but we got to edit this. So we edited it. We, we did the pictures. I, I helped them redo, you know, get the pictures looking better uh, in my artistic aspect of it. So it's a, it's a good book. It's only 189 pages, 190 pages, but it, I mean, again, if you, as I say, if you get two radio people together and you start talking, I mean, I'm in that book. I'm in that book because I was there at all those events and all the things that took place. And so uh, it was fun seeing some of the same stories we covered in True Radio Confessions in his book 
But just from the, I mean, it, that book is a is a true memoir. From that viewpoint, it, it was interesting. I, I loved it. I love the book. And he sold some copies, which is great. And it's a it's just a redo of his uh, his original book. But again, what I'm saying about radio is wherever we go, we could have a conversation with somebody in radio. You run into somebody in a bar or something, you say, oh, yeah, I used to work at radio. And he immediately he's like, oh, where'd you work? And all of a sudden, blah, 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 blah. and within two minutes, the people that are with you are amazed. Like, oh, my God, you you guys like a like are you like fraternity brothers or something? I mean, you you know him this well. It's very funny. It's very well, funny. There's just a network of of you know, people and and stories, and they just all keep overlapping. You know, right. we and all. I have... love when, when I first started going out with uh, Roxy. That was 20 years ago. Uh, I would start telling a story, and she would say, "Would you stop?" I was there. I was like, uh, "Oh, okay, yeah, that's right." You know, you forget. <laughs> I mean, we're all connected. At what you can find. Like the old bit with Kevin Bacon, what was it, six degrees of separation yeah, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Most radio people, it's two degrees. Yeah. I mean, two, max three. Yeah. Well, Roxy, Roxy Mizell worked with everybody in the business. Right. She was in the record business and she was in the radio business and then she was in the syndication business. So she's covered everything. Uh, and fortunately, you know, she lets me do what I want to do and she doesn't care. So that's... That's the perfect woman for me. Perfect relationship. Yeah. We don't have to relitigate stuff. Like, for example, she'll start talking about how she broke some record. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you broke the record. Yeah, great, great. What does that mean for you? So I want to talk a little bit about 96 Rock because that was just such a great radio station for so long. And and you guys were very involved at that station. And that was kind of the one of the crowns you know one of the jewels in the crown because it was also the hometown station but um you, you were you were relatively involved in, in that station's history from almost the beginning yeah well i once again they were already on the air because i remember coming to atlanta to um R rmr convention or yeah. the r and r convention that was at the petrie plaza where everybody got sick on the bad mayonnaise Anyway, the uh, but I would have to say that was a tricky deal for them being in the home market because, you know, we would all come in off the road on Friday night and we would listen over the weekend. So Monday morning, Lee Abrams would get his ears batted by saying, why do they do this? Why do they do that? Rah, 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 rah. So. I got involved with 96 Rock toward the end of the relationship, just as um, iHeart was getting involved, or at that time, it was Clear Channel. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were involved. It's funny how recruitment and trying to put people together, I think people forget that that's, that was one of our fortes. And even if somebody wasn't in a market, like, for example, I wasn't working in Hartford. Lee Michaels was working in Hartford when he heard Howard Stern. And he came to me and says, help me get this guy out of the market. He's killing us. And so I set Howard up to go to Detroit. And then once that fell apart, I was with Howard uh, the night after John Lennon was shot. And I said, you got to go to Washington. You got to get out of here. 
Yeah, they're, they're talking about going country here. I think I'll try it. I'm like, you know, don't, don't waste your time. You're not, you can't do country radio. <laughs> and so eventually he did go to DC 101. The rest is history. Sure. And, you know, as a consultant, that was one of our most valuable assets was being able to move talented people around to different places. And you guys had a pipeline into almost everybody in, in you know, the important people throughout the, the nation really yep. with the connections yeah. and you also knew you know you try not to ethically you have to be careful but you would know when a certain talent's contract was coming up for renewal you know you knew that you had a little you know runway there to work with it, to get back to, to get back to moving people you know you brought up something earlier about how sometimes the consultants take the fall for interfering you know, back in the, the days of the freeform radio, and then all of a sudden there were you guys that had playlists and ideas about how radio should be done. And a lot of those guys got terribly offended because you were crimping their, their creativity. But you also uh, produced incredibly successful radio stations compared, I mean, all the consultants did because you had a global view. But how did you deal with that? I mean, you had to go into radio stations sometimes and feel a certain amount of animosity from the staff who felt like you were there to tell them what to do rather than help them do a good job. Yeah, there were certain stations, like, for example, I remember going to the Loop one time and I mean, it was like hard. They were, you know, we go into a meeting and they would be like, well, I say this isn't to you. You, 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 you know, between Steve Dahl and, and all these people, just, and at times I, I would just look at them and I'd say, okay, all right, all right. But the way to handle it is to know that there's a creative program director or a creative talent, and you're able to let them, give them enough freedom to do the thing that they do well and sort of get out of the way. And I think there were certain program directors that I never uh, got into an argument. I mean, I had one DJ in, in some place like Lubbock, Texas or whatever. And, you know, where I was doing an air check review of this one disc jockey. And he said, if you don't like it, you can go screw yourself. I was like, OK, <laughs> I'll see you. Bye bye. <laughs> and so the point is, he didn't he was fired. But anyway. The point is, is that there are certain people that are bad radio people, okay, corrupt, and you got to get them out of the way because you can't have good music radio when there's five stiffs on the air, stiffs, bad records that were paid for to be on the radio station. You got to get that guy out of the way. And the other, on the other side of the coin, there are certain talent, like I remember um, consulting KLOS and I was having a meeting with Mark and Brian and we had the meeting away from the radio station at a hotel room because they didn't, Mark and Brian didn't want anyone to know that somebody was helping them. Right. Which is funny. He's natural. Right. But they were great. I great guys. I liked them. I mean, we recruited them from Birmingham, Alabama to go to LA. What the, <laughs> we wanted to come to Atlanta and at the last minute they went to LA. But anyway, um, we had a great meeting and they said, well, how are you going to help us? What what can you tell us? What, what do you think of the show? I said, hey, I, I'm a fan, so you guys are the best. You know, whatever. I said, you know, what I heard today was really great radio. I mean, 
I mean, all the stuff you do is really fantastic. I mean, there's one thing you could do better, but I mean, we don't need to talk about it now. You know, really, that's just this one thing. And they looked at me and, and I was done. I was like closing up the notebook. And uh, Mark says to me, okay, you, you can't do that. You, you know, we're radio guys. We know what you just did. You just teased us with this thing. What is it? I said, okay, go to, go to George Green and get a budget for a limo driver. You're in LA. Send the limo up to these famous people's houses up in North Hollywood Hills and whatever and limo them to the station and interview them on the air. As long as they, and tell them that there's free food at the station. And they were like, that's a fantastic idea. I said, <laughs> yeah, think about how many famous people live within five to 10 miles of this radio station. Wow. And, and that was the only thing, that, the only contribution. And they did it. They, they, they figured it out themselves. And I think that's one of the things you have to do. You have to be able to say, I know this person is, is going to be difficult, but I also know that they need ratings to stay. And if they're being paid lots of money, they got to hit the numbers. They have to hit the number. So, um, you know, it worked out. I mean, yeah. the stations we worked with, I remember calculating when all the sales were going on with the, with the uh, deregulation. The stations I worked with in a 10-year period ended up being worth $1 billion. What do you think about Jeez. it? They weren't worth $1 billion when we started. Wow. Some of them were like not even on the air. Yeah. So, you know, that it, that's a nice that's a nice payback, even though they got the money. I didn't. So, so I, I got to ask you, you, you spent 25 years at Burkhart Douglas and, you know, consulting and helping radio stations all over the country. And before you finished your radio career, you got back in a PD's chair at Z93 and you're working for, uh, you know, I don't know how well you did with mel but mel's a tough guy he can be and the company was filled with program directors really smart people and all of a sudden you're back in that office again as opposed to being the guy coming in with the ideas and then leaving how did that feel i mean was that fun was it scary okay it's three years and here's what it is the first year was fabulous the second year was challenging and the third year was hell like a like a marriage you know uh the problem became as as mel started to phase himself out and dan mason came in and mason hired some people i i it was a good experience i had fun i was a little emotional at times, and I now realize that, you know, I was going through a divorce. I had four kids. I still have four kids. Uh, and I didn't handle many of the things. But after that experience, I had so much more respect for program directors of what they go through. And, you know, some days you come to the office and you sit in your chair and you say, what am I going to do to make this station great today? And then all of a sudden, a line of problems lines up in front of your door, from the salespeople to the engineering to this and that. 
and that's frustrating man that's it's hard to be creative whenever you're just being used as a problem solver so uh but it was fun i i mean i wouldn't change it 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 taught me a lot i got through my divorce and then i got fired uh because they realized that just like any other consultant that comes in or or management person comes in i wanted to put howard stern on the air in the morning they didn't that was the end of the marriage yeah because i knew that things would go downhill from there but anyway but i enjoyed i had fun it was nice not being on the road and and that type of thing and then after that i got a call from andrew economos in new york at rcs and says the selector people why don't you come up i i said well what kind of job is it? he says i don't know just come up here and once I got there, he never let he wouldn't le let me leave. It was like, no, 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 we'll find something for you. My first card said Dwight Douglas ideas. That was the that was the uh, on my business card at RCS. I ideas. think I have one of those somewhere. I've yes. forgotten. And then that. they made me vice president of marketing, which is what they should have done the first place. So, but it's wow, fun. that was good. Well, you left a legacy at Z ninety three because you hired Katie Kiley. Yes, that's right. We hired as many people from the other guys as possible. And it, it, by the way, I have no problem with any of those people. The way to view this is actually Andrew Economos, the guy that owned RCS, had a great line. He says, radio, ah, it's the only business I know that eats its young. <laughs> and I thought that's a great example. That's a great line because, because as much as we love radio, think of how crappy and terrible some people have been treated in this business. That's horrible. You know, yeah. a guy gets flown all the way across the country, gets put on the radio morning drive. Some consultant comes in and says, no, that's not going to work. And they put him on the all night show. And the guy's got three kids. And, you know, it's like, what? How, why? How? How does this happen? On, on the other hand, what a hell of a way to make a living. Oh, you kidding me? Uh, we've all Go had play the... some records on the, talk on the radio. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> hey, Dwight, this has been great. I, I am so happy to catch up, and and uh, I'm I'm going to read True Radio Confessions again because it was just I finished it about a month ago, I think, and I already want to pick it up again. So well, I would thank I, you. I would thank you. That's that's a really nice compliment. The I, only other better compliment I had is a guy that wrote me who said. I'm reading it as slowly as possible because I don't want it to end. I thought that was the greatest compliment. That's a great line. Dwight Douglas, I wish you the best. Please uh, stay in touch. Uh, we're happy that you join Friends of Georgia Radio. We're happy to have people like you in the organization. And as you know, we all here are Friends of Georgia Radio. Folder Pod.